Welcome, beautiful listeners, to episode eight of High Tide. My guest today is Alex Damour. She is a writer and deep dives into pockets of her life and expresses herself very vulnerably with her writing. She takes bold risks and is able through that to connect with every individual on the receiving end of her beautiful work. Alex left the algorithm and found freedom. And we also talk about her journey in motherhood and what she no longer stands for. We talk about the unattainable standards of beauty that there are out there today. And we touch parts of our hearts that we all can share in common. In a time of such divide, Alex and I go through what we can take from this sensitive time in our world and that at the end of the day, there is still so much hope for humanity and that everyone is inherently good. Tune in, get comfortable. And if you like what you hear, please like, share and subscribe to High Tide and share it with anyone you think would benefit from hearing it. Thank you so much for your support. And here is our conversation. Alex, I am thrilled to have you as my guest today. I found you through a stream of connecting dots in my own life. One being our awesome mutual friend, Linda Nardi. And the other is me being so captivated by the way you've expressed yourself through your writing. Your words made their way slowly into my Instagram feed. And once I started reading your posts, I knew I would continue to forever. I know I'm not alone in this as so many women globally look forward to the magic of your story sharing and writing. So here we are. And it was once a seed I planted weeks ago to have you on my podcast. And now I get to share this meaningful conversation with you. Thank you so much for being here. Oh my goodness. What an intro. Thank you so much for having me. I think it's been longer than a few weeks. I think the, your first email was months and I've just been so, so terrible at getting back to you. So I'm, I'm so happy that we're finally doing this and thank you for having me on. I want to begin with your journey of writing. I wanted to know if it began through Instagram. I know you used to blog about life and traveling. What, or was there another part of your life before this platform that existed that was an outlet for your words? And did you realize how good you were at it writing early on? Or did it happen organically as a result of diving into it? Oh, I know. I, I still don't think my, my editor always laughs because every week I send her my writing and I'm like, this is garbage. You're <sighs> probably going to have to edit this whole thing. I'm going to have to rewrite it. So I still don't think I'm in a place where I think my writing's any good. But I've learned to embrace that recently because I've heard from more writers on TikTok and Instagram. And I think that's just a part of writing. And so I've learned to embrace it. But to answer your question, I, my, one of my, first, not first memories, but one of my memories regarding writing that really stands out is me telling my grandmother that I wanted to be a writer. I can't remember how, how old I was, maybe, maybe like eight or nine. And I was telling her that I wanted to be a writer. And she told me that writers don't make money. And that is just, it took me years to figure out why I was so hesitant on writing and why I had so many money blocks around being able to and still have being able to make money through my writing. And that sentence just was that sentence really took hold of what I believed when it comes to being a writer, being an artist and how one makes money. And I think most of us grew up that way too, that, you know, when we grew up, you had to be a doctor or a lawyer, you know, those were the things that qualified you as, you know, making a good living or being happy. 
Mm-hmm. And so that memory stands out. So I've wanted to be a writer, I think for, I mean, really as long as I can remember. However, I didn't really ever share that with anyone. I would write, you know, in my teens, I would have notebooks and I would write all the time, but I'd never share it with anyone. And then in my early twenties, I just remember <laughs> listening to Alan Watts and then just writing. <laughs> He's the best. Yeah. And then just writing about life and like self-exploration. And I just was always writing, but never, ever sharing. And I never considered myself a writer. That was something so far removed from what I thought I would ever do. Or the the thought of ever telling someone that I was a writer was n- never a possibility in my head. And then when I was 23, I met one of my best friends, Alicia, and we worked at a restaurant together. And one night after we closed, we sat down and over a couple cocktails, we started talking about our dreams and she shared her dreams with me. And I told her that I wanted to be a writer and I still have her note. The next day she came up to me and she gifted me a notebook and wrote the sweetest, sweetest entry in that, in that notebook and basically said that the world wants to hear what I have to say and that it would be a real big shame if I didn't start sharing my writing. So that's really when I very slowly started entertaining the idea of sharing my writing. And then very slowly over years, I started to on Instagram, basically. That story is so beautiful. It (laughs) brought a little bit of a tear to my eye because I believe sometimes when you're afraid to try something new, it just takes one person to believe in you. And and then it shifts the way you think about going into it. I, I always find her note whenever we're moving and we just had to pack up again a few months ago and I found her note and it always brings tears to my eyes because exactly what you said, just one person believing in you or one person reminding you that your gifts are valuable and that the world does need them is so important. And I remind myself of that often whenever I meet people or I, you know, with friends or just even if I don't really know you well, if I feel like I see something in this person that they need to hear, I always remind people like, you're really talented when it comes to XYZ, because we're so hard on ourselves, all of us. There's, I have yet to meet anyone who doesn't have an awful inner dialogue. And it's just so important to remind people of their own beauty because it's so hard for us sometimes to see it. And so her note and the impact that's had on my life remind me to do that to other people wherever I can. That's so, so powerful. And then also speaking to what you said about what we think we need to do in order to be happy with like, is it becoming a doctor or lawyer? What we were all like, I was part of that conditioning too. I thought that's a route I had to take in order to be worthy. And yet we have like completely by you doing your writing, you're redefining what your pedigree of happiness is and what it's worth, because I truly believe the world wants to hear what you have to say. So I'm really glad you took into that note and embodied it. It's amazing what you've been creating. Thank you. And yeah, it's, you know, we all have these like subconscious beliefs, right? And it's, you know, for me, like what you just touched on, with growing up, like for me personally, one of the reasons why I, besides the the money part and, and that writers don't make money, one of the reasons why I never thought to pursue it either is because I believe genuinely that I wasn't smart enough to write because I didn't have a college degree or university degree. 
And why did I believe that? Because that was what was instilled in me as a child, that I needed a degree. I needed an education. That's what was going to make me smart. That's what was going to make me worthy. And so because I didn't get that, I never thought I was smart enough to write, let alone to share it out loud to anybody. And so, yeah, we all struggle, I think, with these messages that we've been given as children and they carry through, you know, they carry with us through our adult lives. And we're all just, I guess, trying to figure out, unravel from those storylines that aren't really ours, you know, those beliefs that aren't ours. Yes. With that said, you created a space called On Our Moon and it's a site that explores being human through personal storytelling and fostering vulnerability and connections. What motivated you to create this space? And have you discovered anything about yourself and others as a result of creating this space? Oh my goodness, so much. So I launched on our moon because really it was the space I I was looking for. It's as simple as that. So before I launched on our moon, I started doing, I mean, I guess what you would call influencing. I was... I had a lifestyle blog. I was doing traveling, you know, basically what you see pretty much everyone doing on Instagram nowadays. And I was doing that for a few years. And at the time, my personal life wasn't really great. And I felt like I was going through so many things and experiencing so much. But the what I was portraying on Instagram was this perfect world where I got to travel and wear perfect clothes. And I, my hair was always perfect and I wore makeup. And, the, you know, every the image I was portraying was a life of perfection. And But who I was outside of Instagram was someone who was deeply insecure, someone who was really trying to find... I was really trying to find my place in the world and I, you know, figure out who I am. And that required me to go through all my childhood wounds and, you know, all this yucky stuff. And finally, those two, you know, those two contradictory experiences clashed and I I couldn't continue anymore. And so I created On Our Moon really because I was looking for a safe space where I could share and write about what I was going through. And because I wasn't confident enough to, like, I I think back at that all the time, like, why didn't I just start my own blog writing and eventually introduce writers? And so because I wasn't confident as a writer, what I really did was make sure that everyone else is heard. And I kind of stopped writing for a while and I was just editing other people's pieces. So On Our Moon itself has even gone through an interesting evolution based on my own confidence as a writer and the more I continued with Honor Moon, the more I became confident as, as a writer and the more I started sharing my own stories. But what have I learned? Oh my goodness. I think I ultimately learned that everyone has a story and everyone's story deserves to be heard. It's as simple as that. And I think there's so much noise on Instagram and social media and we're hearing so many different perspectives, but that doesn't necessarily mean your story and your experiences and what really hurt you in life is being heard. Right. And I think what we did with On Our Moon, both on the website and the events we did offline was really about creating space to show people that they mattered and that their stories mattered. And I've learned so much from other people's stories. And it's something that even though I'm not continuing on our moon in the same way, it's something that I will never stop doing to always understand someone through their stories and to always encourage people to share their their own experiences. And what 
an important mission statement. I mean, like I've been practicing doing hair for 15 years and I hear so many stories all day long and you're a therapist. (laughs) Yeah. And you ultimately cultivate these relationships with people over a decade. And it's amazing. And you're, I completely agree with you. So many people, everybody, everybody has a story to share and to be able to hold space for them and listen uninterrupted and give them a voice where they can feel like they can share that without being judged is such a gift. And so I, I love that you did that. Yeah. And also that, you know, another thing that it really taught me is that in our own weird ways, we're all hiding something. The less we speak our stories, the less we're living in our truth, the more we're hiding. And so I feel like it's important to find spaces and, and that's not necessarily online always, but it's important to find spaces where you can, where you can explore what's happened to you good and bad and how that shaped who you are today. Because ultimately, you know, going back to what we first talked about, everyone has unique set of skills and gifts and the world deserves to see those. But sometimes it's really hard to understand what your gifts are when what's happened to you is so overwhelming, so traumatic, there's so much to unpack there. And so sometimes you got to work on those things first before you can even understand what your purpose in the world is and what your gifts are. And I think with On Our Moon, we were able to get to a place where we encourage people to really sit with their shame and sit with their whatever made them vulnerable, to be able to sit in that space of discomfort, to be able to get to the other side, you know, and and that's an ongoing thing. Obviously, it's not just like a one and done thing, but it made me realize that we're all constantly doing that, right? We're all constantly figuring out like where our place in the world is and how we matter and how that changes over time. And that Uh, we are far more connected than we realize. Absolutely. And that's another thing is, you know, I think, I mean, we talked on our moon a lot about privilege. I, that's one thing. And, you know, I'm I'm sure you know about Brene Brown and and a lot of your listeners do as well, but I mean, her work is really touched on that. No one doesn't matter, you know, celebrities, people that we admire and look up to everyone has experienced shame. Everyone is healing to a certain degree from their experiences as a child or traumatic events they've gone through. And yeah, on our moon really taught me on a very personal level working intimately with our writers and having very strong relationships with our followers and our readers that we're all, we're all going through something. A hundred percent. I wanted to dive a little bit into motherhood. This past January, you became a mother for the first time with Rocky. Beautiful, beautiful Rocky. What about motherhood is something you've discovered that you did not expect at all? And I I hate to say this because I know, and I'm so inspired by people who share this because I think it's such a vulnerable thing to share that they didn't experience love right away with their baby because Mm -hmm. for some people that does happen over time. So I hate, I kind of hate that this is my answer, but it's the truth. I think I wasn't prepared for the love because I love pretty hard and deeply and (laughs) I, you know, for me, at least I thought I knew what love was. And that's not to say that people that don't have kids don't know what love is at all. Am I implying that? But for me personally, I thought I had an idea of what love 
was. And then my daughter was born and it just, I I can't compare it to any other type Mm -hmm. of love I know. And I, I don't think I was genuinely prepared for that because it's very vulnerable to love that someone that much. And in the beginning, I really struggled with very intrusive postpartum thoughts that I thought were just happening to me. And it wasn't until I started talking to other moms, to my friends, that I realized that that's very common. But I think part of those intrusive thoughts are kind of this coping mechanism yeah, for how overwhelming the love is where you're just being yeah bombarded in your head at these random times of extreme things that could potentially happen. And for me, they were very visual and extreme. And within a moment, there were very painful things that I experienced in my head that weren't actually happening. And I think that is a direct result of just how overwhelmed I was by that love, if that makes sense. It does. I think to what you were saying about your thoughts, our thoughts are so powerful. And it just depends if our energy, we're putting our energy there. And sometimes I think motherhood, especially first time moms in the very beginning stages, like the level of tired is so next level. You couldn't even shut off your thoughts if you tried, like whether they were good or bad. And I think for me, I found that like it was isolating at some moments. And I I didn't expect to feel so alone in some parts because it's motherhood is so glamorized and that there's a village around you and you know, you're, you're going to be so enamored with your new baby and you are definitely, it's just, I also found that there were times when I felt really alone. I felt like no one on earth understands how I'm feeling right now, which couldn't have been further from the truth. My mom came to visit. She was our first visitor when Rocky was seven weeks and she took a photo of me that's totally not glamorous. It's just me breastfeeding Rocky, but it's the images of me and you can see a door and I'm sitting kind of like through the doorway. Anyways, that image always stands out when I think of my first postpartum experience, because I was also really taken aback by just how lonely those early days were. Mm -hmm. And I don't think for me, when it comes to the village, I don't want our current village. And so when I was pregnant, I was very clear on what boundaries we needed to set with our family in order for me to have the fourth trimester that I wanted to have. So I was very clear that the village that was available to us was one that I did not want. Respectfully. <laughs> but so I think it's almost a bit more than just the village aspect, because I don't know if I had all the help in the world, if that loneliness would have dissipated. And I've talked to friends right. who had a bunch of help from parents to friends which we didn't necessarily have. And they said that they still experienced that loneliness. So I, I really just think it is a part of it. And I think the more us moms talk about it openly, hopefully the more we're preparing new moms that that is a part of it and that you will get through it and feel differently at some point. You know, it, it does pass. I feel very differently now. Mm-hmm. I, I agree. Did. I do too. Rocky was like seven weeks, you know? Yeah. And you're right. You've touched down on a good point, which is even though like I live in a place where my family is really close and we do have help available to us. And in spite of that, it didn't nullify the loneliness or isolation I was feeling. So I think it's, I think it's great that you mentioned that it is a part of the process. 
Yeah, I think I just wrote about this actually for my newsletter tomorrow because I've personally been struggling. It's not that the early days of motherhood weren't challenging for me, but I think I was very mentally prepared for what it looked like because I had been following so many accounts for so long and I read so much about birth and so much about the fourth trimester. And I researched a ton about how other cultures are. And so I was really prepared for the fourth trimester and I had endless conversations with my husband about it. So I think he felt really prepared too, but I am really struggling with motherhood. Actually now my daughter now is eight months and I, I, I wasn't prepared to struggle this much now because I didn't, you know, I, you just hear it gets better. It gets better. And that's totally been my experience up until now. Right. And so I'm, I'm really going through kind of a, a challenging period right now with motherhood. And so that's been very interesting too, because kind of all I heard about was those early days and then everything gets better for me. Again, it wasn't that it was a walk in the park, but I took to motherhood pretty easily. You know, my breastfeeding journey was easy. I had a very supportive partner. We had good, like we kind of, everything was a very smooth transition. Mm -hmm. And now that my daughter's on the move and I'm trying to get back into work, I'm, I now, I think, feel the type of overwhelmness that I think I was supposed to feel during those early days. So it's kind of switched a little bit, I guess but I feel very overwhelmed. <laughs> well, that's funny. Cause I mean, it's not funny, but my next question after everything you just said is about being stretched on our journey of being pregnant and becoming mothers, both physically and emotionally. And I'm learning in my own life too, that being stretched is usually indicative of the beginning stages for creating new spaces in our life and literally growing us. And before becoming a mom and still sometimes I definitely struggle in those stages with bouts of resistance, but I can't help but feel like sometimes that resistance is a compass and maybe it's trying to nudge us into creating new foundations that maybe the old ones aren't serving us anymore. And these struggles are here to teach us something. I guess my question is what ways have you felt stretched? Like you were saying just now that now is the struggle it is pushing you to something that you need to learn to evolve or do you ever feel like it's just too big, which I actually don't think you would because nothing's <laughs> too big to handle based on what you've written and what you've shared with everyone. But yeah, do you feel that stretch? Do you recognize that stretch physically and mentally? And just can you take it outside of pregnancy and compare it to life as well. Oh yeah, absolutely. And that was so beautiful how you worded that, that stretching allows room for more in our lives. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I fully agree with everything you said regarding, you know, specifically when it comes to motherhood, I think all your stuff just shows up. There's nowhere to hide. Mm, Yes. So whatever you were struggling with before will show up in motherhood. And so for me, something I really struggled with, and I've written about this on our moon, and I really struggled with after my dad passed away was admitting that I'm not okay. And that's really hard for me to do because because of my childhood, I was taught to be really independent and not needing someone is kind of a part of my identity. Not it used to be not so much anymore, but it used to be this thing, you know, like I can do everything on my own. I don't need you. 
saying I haven't needed my parents since I was 18 years old, that alone gave me so much freedom in my 20s. And it was this thing that I carried, this weight I carried on my shoulders that I was very proud of, but really it came out of a trauma response. Mm. And basically that's what I just, I just experienced this week is I had to say I wasn't okay. I'm not okay. I'm not in a good place. I'm feeling overwhelmed. And luckily I'm in a place now where it's taking me less and less time to be able to identify it and then to be able to speak it out loud to someone I love. But basically for the last month or so, I was struggling. Part of what was making me so overwhelmed and what was making me so anxious at times was the fact that I was pushing through without acknowledging that I was not in a good space mentally, physically, emotionally, all the things. And so for me personally, what happens as soon as I say the words out loud and talk to someone, I just feel it's like, it fully is like a weight that that's lifted. Mm -hmm. But yeah, in, in the ways that motherhood stretches you, I just don't think there's anywhere to hide. And I've read that moms will say, for example, that they had a pretty easy ride with motherhood. And then when they're a daughter or son turned seven, the same age that something happened to them in their childhood, that year was then a really strong trigger point. And so I'm always reminded of that. You know, when I think of the things that I struggle with now, I try to think of, okay, was there something in my lineage or something in my history that happened that could potentially be a place for healing for me right now? And for me, I've, I've really, through having Rocky, I've really like dove deep into generational healing and generational trauma and then therefore healing. But that's been a big one for me is really thinking about the age that your kid is and then thinking about things that have happened in your life or your parents' life at that exact age. Because I I do really think that those intersect for our own healing. Yeah. And you actually just wrote about this recently in your newsletter. And I love the quote. I think it was your mentor shared with you. And correct me because I don't remember the exact words, but it was something about if you heal your trauma, you heal, is it seven years behind you and seven years ahead of you? Yeah. So when you heal yourself, you heal seven generations back and seven generations forward. And I've, I've heard that saying a lot, but it wasn't until I, yeah, I saw my mentor who's because also my physical therapist in, in Sedona and became my mentor, but I call her Rocky's old fairy godmother because that's like <laughs> what she feels like to us, our family now. She always has the answer, the magical answer. Uh-huh. But yeah, I did a lot of work with her around trauma that lives in my body that isn't inherently mine. And, you know, she always reminds me that that shows up during times in motherhood when it shows up, it's really for us to heal it in this lifetime, in this generation. And so I think when we think about things that we're going through as moms, like one thing that's really left out of the conversation in our journeys is how are we here to heal things from the past in order to help our children not carry this trauma on for for their future lineages. But basically, in short, what I'm trying to say is that I think Whatever you're healing is helping your kids. So even if it feels really hard and challenging in this present moment, I know that it is serving something greater for Rocky for any future kids that I may have. Yeah, I often say that becoming a parent has given me this superpower that I can't turn off even if I tried where you can be 
a shapeshifter on so many generations to come? And then how could you take that big thing and ever want to turn away from it? You know what I mean? Like, I know that progress isn't linear, but I often think about that. And it's kind of what inspires me to push through the work, no matter how hard and uncomfortable it can be. Up until recently, there was no space for us to have these conversations, right? And that I think has been part of why our mothers struggled so much and why that was carried on towards us. You know, going kind of circling back to the loneliness too. I think we go through such a, you know, we're just broken wide open after birth and everything feels so sensitive. And we've really never in that you're never as intuitive and raw as right after birth. And you can feel everyone you can, it's, it's like you're a part of nature in its purest form, which we always are, but it's, you're, you're forced into that space and it's so overwhelming and we have no space to, to talk about that. We have no words to really, you know, we have no language to really figure out what, what all these feelings and emotions are. And then we just have to go on and pretend everything is fine. You know, and then we have to go yeah. on and carry on to our normal jobs or have a normal conversation with our partner or friends and be a good daughter and be a good wife and all these things. Right. And we kind of just have to pretend that none of this happened. And I think that's part of the loneliness is like not having the right language to describe like this monumental change we've gone through. And that alone feels so isolating. Yeah. It's wild. It's, it is, it's like a giant portal and you're right. There's nowhere to hide. It's, it's there and you can't undo it. Like you just got to embrace it. Totally. I want to talk about speaking of like how much change happens, just the love that is birthed out of becoming a mom. Like when I read your posts about Rocky, I can, I'm right there with you. I feel every emotion you pour into your words. And I really believe words carry energy. And I thank you for that because it touchstones on so many moms that I'm sure feel that big love that you were saying earlier is like nothing you've ever known before. My personal experience with my son, Koa, I feel like it was very spiritual and I can't help but feel reinforced by him and his birth that there's something so powerful and divine behind all of it. And I'm, I'm only speaking to my own experience and maybe some other people can relate, but do you ever feel that way about Rocky? Like she chose you. Like, I feel like Koa chose me. And sometimes I feel like when I share that with people, they look at me sideways and their looks don't bother me because I believe it with every fiber of my being. Do you ever feel that way? Oh, absolutely. I did a conscious conception course in LA, obviously, because that's what just one does when you live in LA. But (laughs) I was going to uh, biweekly moon circles all the time at this place in LA. And I became close with the woman who facilitated them. And when I told her that we were going to start trying, she mentioned that my husband and I should do a conscious conception course. And that was the first time I'd heard the term spirit baby. Mm. And so basically what she, the concept that she taught me was that we're constantly birthing things, right? Whether it's a podcast baby, a book baby, you know, whatever Mm. we are birthing, we're in the, when, when we're in a creative space, we are pregnant with something, a project, you know, or in our, you know, what we're talking about life. And that really resonated with me. And then when she described spirit baby, she mentioned I should read this book 
called Spirit Babies. I think it's actually called How to Communicate with Your Spirit Baby. And that book was just so profound. And basically, this person like shared a bunch of stories of how they helped heal people from all over the world get in touch with their spirit baby through miscarriage, abortion, past spirit, like all sorts of stories you can imagine are in this book. Right. And I've told so many people about this book, like people who are not spiritual, you know, who you would not be like, oh, have you read this book book called Spirit Babies? And the response is always the same. Wow, this, this book really made me feel something. And I think it's to what you were saying. It's you can't explain it, but you feel them there. And so anyways, long story short, when my husband and I did this conscious conception course, we both felt a spirit there. I know it sounds crazy, but this was like during... Oh, I believe you. (laughs) It was during a very like meditative state. And we had to write a letter to that baby and then write that the spirit baby was writing a letter back to us. And even as I'm saying it out loud right now, I'm like, that. oh, that all sounds so crazy. But, you know, when we were in this like meditative state, it was so easy to tap into that energy. And it's funny because when I read my letter to, oh, I'm like, only cry. But when I read the letter to my spirit baby at the time, it said, I will make sure my body is the safest home it could be for you. And I didn't get pregnant for almost three years. and. I, you know, all I wanted was to get pregnant during that time. I didn't realize at the time how much I was healing my lineage, my body, my story, everything that, you know, I kind of went through as a human being up until the point I actually did get pregnant. And now that I am a mom, I'm so grateful that I didn't get pregnant when I wanted to. And every time I find that letter I wrote to spirit baby to now Rocky, I'm always reminded of the power of divine timing because that's all I wanted, right? My human timing was like, I need this now. But there are reasons I believe that things don't always happen exactly when we want them to. And specifically when it comes to spirit babies, there are also reasons outside of our experiences that it might not be happening because the spirit baby needs something that is not materialized in this world. Again, I know some people might be rolling their eyes right now. It's very woo-woo. I I trust me, I hear myself and I know it's not crazy, but I really believe, I really, really believe that our kids do choose us. And then the really hard question is, if our kids choose us, then why did we choose our parents? Right. And that is a really tough one. (laughs) yes it's a lot easier to look at our kids and be like oh my god they chose me you know but then when you're like whoa why did I choose my mom and why did I choose my dad you know and that oh my god I (laughs) just got so emotional for some reason I know I know it's it's and it's it's a really tough conversation to have and when we did events with on our moon I think for a few events, I I mentioned that. And it's a really tough one to to talk about because, you know, as very often in the spiritual world, I'm really conflicted by some things, right? You know, children that have experienced, you know, really, really, really traumatic events. It's like, it's very hard to be like, well, you chose that. You know, I don't believe that. A hundred percent. But in the same breath, when I personally for myself think of why I chose my mom and dad, you know, I immediately tear up. It's... It's, um, Mm -hmm. it hits a different place. And I think it's because you're connecting 
to less to your human self and you're connecting more to that spirit version, you know, this, your own, you as a spirit baby and why you potentially chose them and what type of healing you, my friend, Brie Melanson, who's, is, she's a psychic and she calls, she calls it soul contracts. So what contract did I make with my mom in this lifetime? What contract did I make with my dad in this lifetime? Right. So anyways, we're, I'm rambling at this Ooh, point. No, that. But yes, I do believe to answer your question. Yes, I do believe our babies choose us. Absolutely. And um, that we, we choose them, you know, they're our teachers. I, one of the things I'm so inspired by this particular generation of mothers is how willing and open they are to be led by their children versus this mentality that I think previous generations had where it's like, we are the teachers and we are teaching children. And I'm so inspired by all the parents and just the space that my husband and I are trying to live in as parents is that we're she's guiding us. And she has been, even before she was born, she's guided. She's the one who brought us to Sedona. You know, now in hindsight, I believe all these things that happened were because she was guiding us there. And it's really inspiring to just see the conversations that are happening where we're looking at these little human beings as teachers versus these beings that we need to, that we need to imprint our own limiting beliefs on. Absolutely. I'm just taking in everything you're saying. And I agree with you. You know, before Koa was born, Sean and I were forced, not forced, but we were invited to step into things that were conflicts within ourselves and our relationship. And we really had to ask ourselves, are we prepared to create a life from this space? And if we're not, what would it look like if we healed it and then created life out of that love? Like, it is so powerful. It just like it blows my mind when I think about it. So I believe you. I believe that our children are our gurus. They're, they're our greatest teachers. And it is refreshing to see that we are in a generation of moms who, who trust that, that they're so much bigger than what we were taught in the past. Right. And that does not make it easy for us moms who are living in that space because you know, I do believe it's a lot easier just to impose your own things onto children, right? It's a lot harder to view them as teachers because then you have to be open and you have to walk in a very vulnerable space, you know, where you're the student. And that can be really challenging at times and not always easy. And that's part of the stretch too. It's like, what are we hanging on so hard to that isn't creating space and room for something that might help us evolve? Like what isn't serving us anymore and what can we afford to let go of now? So I think that's really powerful thing that our children help us realize. I was going to say something, but I don't, I didn't know if you were going to ask. Oh no, (laughs) go ahead. No, I was just going to say too, like something that Kevin and I, my husband and I talked a lot about during my pregnancy is, and we, even before I got pregnant, so what is our intention with parenting? You know, I think it's, and I'm really inspired by all the people who are clear in their choice of not wanting children, because I think we need to have more honest conversations around that too, and create space to not have children be this automatic thing that you do in life, you know, take like box. Because I do believe there's 
many of our parents, like our parents' generation that didn't really want to have kids, but they didn't really have any other options because that's just what you did. It was a box you ticked. And so I really, I think it's really awesome just how many people are saying, I don't want kids. However, if you do make the conscious choice to have kids, I think really thinking about, you know, what, what are my intentions with parenting and what am I trying to gain from this? And what am I trying to impose on someone, on someone's life? Like what impact do I want to make? And having those conversations with Kevin, were they were so interesting and just hearing his response and my response, and then also really getting into a place like, am I saying that this thing is important because of my own experiences? You know, one thing that I would constantly say was, I just want to be able to nurture her being and her being able to just be who she wants to be in this world. That's the only thing I really care about as a parent. I never want to tell her who she has to be, what she has to do. I just want to foster her light. You know, I feel like that's ultimately what our role is as parents is that we've been given this spirit baby's light and that we are responsible for as much as possible, not dimming that light and that we are responsible for whatever they have to do in this world, whatever impact they need to do, that we allow their light to shine. And it's very easy when we get into the mentality of our, that our parents were in to try and dim that light when you're not willing to walk into that vulnerable space of being open and learning from our own mistakes and whatnot. And so anyways, for me, really being clear on what my intentions are as a parent has made it a lot easier to follow my intuition actually has made it a lot easier to be in an intuitive state versus like fear-based and an anxious state, if that makes sense. Yeah. hundred percent. And imagine if we had that sort of guidance when we were babies and I, and I understand our parents were doing the best they can for what they knew at the time, but just imagine right. the difference, right? Well, the difference would be that I wouldn't have needed that note from my friend at 23 right. years old. You know? <laughs> that, I mean, that's that's ultimately, and I, I do think we are seeing that with Gen Z as well, just how willing to be themselves they are, which is so different, I think, from our generation where we had to be a certain image all the time. And we, we had very confined boxes that we were able to fit in. And I think many of us are still, you know, body image, all this stuff. Many of us, I think are still like unraveling from all these things that we were taught to be, you know, growing up. Absolutely. And now that you mentioned body image, that was actually my next question in becoming a mother, the way our bodies have changed and the way we relate to it. And you did write about this also about body image and how we talked about there seems to be this degree of unattainable standard of beauty out there. And I think about the people in my life that are so close to my heart, my nieces, and just what kind of influence they have around them in the platform of social media. How have you felt that you've change the way you relate to your body if if you have since motherhood and now that you have rocky how do you feel you want to teach that to her and how like what does healthy beauty image look like for you well it's i mean it's that's like one of the things that definitely stands out when it comes to what i've learned so far in motherhood is just how insane i was before when it comes to how i treated to how insane my inner dialogue was when it came to my own body. And 
I'm just so much nicer to myself now. And I really try to lead with love and compassion towards myself because I think having Rocky really made it clear what I will not stand for. And I, I will not put myself down because I don't want any of that to be instilled in her. You know, I have this like bizarre obsession with cellulite, obviously, because our society, <laughs> duh. but when I really spent time thinking this was years ago, I, I wrote about it for on our moon as well. But when I really spent time thinking about okay, why am I so obsessed with cellulite? I remembered I had a, a memory pop up of my mom putting on me, putting on cellulite cream on my mom when I was like 10 years old or something. Wow. And my mom was like 4'10 and the smallest person you've ever seen in your life. And she had zero cellulite. And so I think seeing my mom be so obsessed with, with trying to attain this unattainable beauty standard. And I'm not at all shaming my mom or any of our mothers, because I mean, when you just think about everything those women were going through, you know, talking about like unattainable standards, you know, I, I really, especially coming, becoming a mom myself, I really have a lot of empathy and compassion for those moms. So I'm not saying this Mm -hmm. in shaming or uh, pointing the finger type of way, but at the end of the day, that did really resonate with me and left an imprint on my brain. And still now it doesn't matter. Even if I genuinely don't care that I have cellulite and I've gotten to a place where I'm able to walk in a bikini without like fidgeting and without like ask, you know, without trying to cover up constantly, I still look in the mirror and see it and, and have, you know, those negative thoughts. But for me, it's not about changing the negative thoughts. It's just about what I do with those thoughts. Right. So I want to teach Rocky that, you know, you can have a bad day. You can feel shitty about your body. You know, you can feel all these things, that's okay. It's just like how you, how you deal with them. Right. And so for me, I'm very clear that I don't want to, as much as I can project anything towards Rocky that she will inherit. That said, I mean, that's all easier said than done, obviously. Right. And for me, I think spending time and self-reflecting on why I feel certain things about my body has been really, really impactful and powerful. So But yeah, like I said, like, why do I care about my cellulite outside of like society stuff? Like, can I, can I remember a time when I was made to feel a certain way about my body and really spending time in my memory bank has been really impactful to see that it's not just like the society thing, the magazines, all that messaging also lived in our households, in our families, you know, Um, consumerism. I mean, consumerism, totally, absolutely. And I love what you said about like, you know, the thoughts don't necessarily go away, but it's just how, what you think about them and how you relate maybe to those thoughts. Right. And what, so for me, exploring my relationship with my body is easier maybe than for some people. Also, I I feel like this has to be pointed out, but my body is not like shamed publicly anywhere on social media, you know, that I live a life of privilege in that sense that even though I have all these internal thoughts and even though I am a size two and I've still put my body down. I mean, if anyone lived inside my brain, they would think I'm insane for the thoughts I've had about my body. And motherhood really taught me just that I I really did have body dysmorphia, which I did not know. I genuinely did not know I had until I became a mom. But I look back at photos now and thoughts I had, and it just, it's crazy to me that I thought that way about myself at a certain point. And I think it's 
really because I spent time asking myself, okay, why do I feel this way? And what will I, what will I no longer stand for? And when you actually say it out loud in your brain or write it down in your journal, I will no longer stand for X, Y, Z, whatever those things may be for you. That's a really powerful place because suddenly Mm -hmm. those words now live on you on a cellular level. And that means that again, you can have negative thoughts. They'll still keep coming the rest of your life. But when you, when they come in and feel intrusive, you remember those words, you remember your line in the sand and what you will no longer stand for. And it's a lot easier to not spiral in this place of negativity and a lot easier to step into self-love and self-compassion and, and ultimately just start learning to appreciate beauty in you outside of the patriarchy, outside of, you know, I've spent a lot less time in the mirror since I became a mom. And that's been great for me because when I spend time in the mirror, it's so easy to go down the, you know, I, I see this wrinkle all of a sudden, you know, I, this lump, you know, whatever. We're so critical when we look in the mirror, but yeah. when I put on clothes and that's like my new philosophy when it comes to clothing myself, actually, is I try to actually think about how I feel in the clothing before I look in the mirror. And that's actually like allowed me to dress for myself and less for what I was conditioned to believe makes a woman attractive within the patriarchy. I'm a lot more comfortable. Even the jeans I wear are comfortable. Yeah. Uh, you know, I just feel a lot better because I'm not looking in the mirror as much. And I think that is a really, we were looking in the mirror to feel good, but really it's just making us feel awful. And I, I, I try to encourage people to spend less time looking in the mirror. It's easier said than done, obviously, but And it's amazing how when we honor our body, we show up different too. Don't you feel like you carry yourself more confidently and you just, it's 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 like living. It's absolutely insane. I used to, when Kevin and I first met, I used to, I remember like his friends would come over and I would rush to the bathroom to put on eyeliner because the thought of them seeing me without makeup was I mean, it, it sounds so dramatic right now, but it really was this like visceral reaction of like panic, you know, like they, they might see who I am, you know, it's and, in the, it's in the movies too. Like on bridesmaids, the opening scene is when she spent the night at a guy's house and sneaks off before he wakes up into the bathroom and reapplies her makeup so that she can look like she woke totally. up like that. Yeah. And I have done that. I have done that that too. I've definitely done that with Kevin and other guys I've dated for sure. And it's, you know, my hair just like perfect was like perfect in the morning sunlight and, you know, all this like silly stuff that we've put, well, not that that has been put in our heads, not that we've put in our heads, but you can feel beautiful with, this isn't like a makeup thing. Everyone needs to do whatever makes them feel beautiful. So I'm not even saying like, don't wear makeup. That's what makes you beautiful. I'm not, that's not like the conversation that, that really inspires me, but it is interesting to see how much I feel good and sometimes even beautiful without makeup on. And I now don't care who comes in and quote, sees me without makeup, you know? (laughs) And I think that goes back to what we were saying earlier. You know, the more you spend time with your shame stories and what makes you feel ashamed, the the more we can operate without a mask on, you know, in this case, my mask was like literally makeup, but now I, I don't feel like I'm hiding, you know, when I wear yeah. makeup, I'm wearing makeup. And when I'm not, 
none of it feels like a big deal to me, you know, whether I'm in sweatpants or dressed up, I, I feel like I'm, I've gotten to a place where I'm doing things for me versus for how outside of you. Yes. Like before I would put on makeup to go to do a story or makeup to go see a friend. And now I'm more in the space of, I just follow whether I, that's something I want to do or not. And so if it's a day, I don't want to wear makeup. I'm like really going deep on this makeup thing, but (laughs) it's just, I'm really just trying to emphasize that there was a time in my life where the thought of not wearing makeup in front of someone and not just a little, like, I mean, a full eye was like unbearable and and now it's not. And so I think that's really just because I've been able to sit with like what makes me feel ashamed within my body. And that's different for everyone. And I think especially with postpartum, it's really hard to step into a body that feels so foreign. Everything about a postpartum body is so, it, it feels like on top of it, it feels like your body's not even yours. It's part of yeah. this other human now, you know? So there's so much when it comes to body stuff postpartum, but I will say for me, and I, it's not that I I'm trying to instill lies to other women, but it's just my, my pure experience that like postpartum has been amazing for me, for my body, because it made me realize just how mean I was to myself. And I've been able to get into this space of true self-love just because I no longer want to live that way. And I don't want to be that type of example to my daughter. And I don't want her to pick up anything that it's normal to hate your body or normal to look in the mirror and hate yourself that much. I don't ever want her to see me doing that. That's beautifully said. And I, it reminds me of something I learned, which is that my focus now in motherhood has shifted to living a life that I feel good inside in versus living a life that looks good outside Hmm. to others. And so there's a huge difference there. And I'm, (laughs) I guess I'm just realizing that now, like as I became a mom and plus you just don't even really have room in your head to think about all the things and the makeup and let alone like our choices and how we spend our money. Is that how we want to spend our money on all this makeup? And I'm not judging people for how they spend their money. I'm just saying it shifts your priority shifts and then your perspective shifts and then your container shifts. It's like, it's all so connected. Yeah. And I mean, it's, it's interesting, like on TikTok, there's this mom on TikTok. She's got beautiful long hair. She's always got this, her makeup, her outfits, always perfect. And she's got, I mean, her baby's now 10 months, I think, but at the time her baby was like three months, four months. And she, you know, she already had a six pack and all these things. And all these moms were commenting back. That's not how I look right now with a baby. And I just had a baby and that's definitely not how I looked. You know, I was leaking through every single, sh- it you know, I laugh when people like talk about breast pads. Cause it's like, I was leaking through every single thing. And then the beautiful thing. And what I love about TikTok is then mom started responding to those videos with what they were currently wearing, right? And what they look like. And I think that's been so as much as they're all jokes and funny TikToks, it's been so great to see myself represented that way. Like, Oh, the, the messy bun. Don't remember last time I showered smell. Let's not even talk about the smells. Oh you know, man. It's, it's really nice to see those images because then it makes you feel less shitty about the fact that that's exactly what you look like in your house and it's normal. It's okay. And I think we we talk a lot about social media and its negative impacts, but I do really believe that specifically when it comes to postpartum bodies, social media has had an incredible impact. At, at least I guess I for myself because 
I really, I saw so many images that I was prepared for anything to happen to my body. That doesn't mean that I was going to embrace it right away or love it right away. But because I saw enough images of stretch marks on bellies of mom showing their showing off their postpartum bodies, it helped me embrace the unknown of what was going to happen to my body. And so the weight gain really didn't bother me that much because it just felt like I had seen those images and those women encouraged me to embrace it. And it's always so powerful when someone gives you permission to love yourself a little bit more. And I think in that aspect, social media has been really impactful for postpartum bodies specifically. Yeah, it's really beautiful too when we can connect in normalizing the struggle. And I think, like you said, social media does serve a good purpose in that sense. In one of your newsletters too, you wrote how... I'm going to move away from this topic. So we're going to jump into something else. But you wrote how being able to apologize is a love language and doing so isn't an admission of failure, but an acknowledgement of being human. This quote and piece you wrote was powerful and reached the hearts of so many. I remember uh, the day after you released this newsletter, so many people were sharing it on their story, which tells me that on a big level all around the world, people agree. Like there is a lot of power in apologizing. And I also love that you mentioned that showcasing our humanity is the greatest gift we can give to our children. How has Rocky being in you and Kevin's life changed the way you and Kevin show up for each other? Okay. I have a lot of thoughts on this topic. So I'm trying to, my brain is like, has so many thoughts. I'm trying to be concise. I think Couples should do a better job talking about the changes in their life during pregnancy. Because what I have read a lot and talked to a lot of friends is that those conversations and, you know, they kind of just got pregnant and then just had the baby. And then I think all similar to what we talked about earlier, all your stuff shows up, all your stuff shows up in relationships during those first few months, you know? So if you're coming from a space where you and your partner are completely unable to communicate, you're, you're not able to communicate a need to your partner that is going to put an immense strain on your relationship postpartum because you don't have energy to do anything correctly. You're like barely hanging on. You're you're not able to like beautifully articulate a need, you know, (laughs) you're not, at least I wasn't, I wasn't in that space. And so I think Kevin and I did a lot of work before we had Rocky that really helped our relationship once we actually had her. And it was And I say this because it was still hard. And what really always, I forget where I read this or where I heard this, but it really resonates with me is that we're a family unit, but we also have very much our individual paths as well. So Kevin has his own path as a father. I have my own path as a mother. And then we have our like collective path as a family. And so it's making space for those three paths you know, where Kevin might struggle with something in fatherhood that's completely different from what I'm struggling with. And then like how we're struggling as a new family, you know, for us, I'd say having Rocky has really only helped in the sense that I feel like we're not spending time bickering on things that we otherwise would have the time and energy for. I feel like we've entered that space of being like a really old married couple where (laughs) we're 
we're able to get to this space of like, well, you're just bugging me and him being like, well, you're just annoying me too. And then we kind of just look at each other like, well, okay. And then just walk away. You know, it's yeah. where before, especially me, you know, I was the queen of like, Kevin needed to know every single one of my, I'm a Pisces. He needed to know every single one of my feelings. If he was bothering me, if he was annoying me, if he, I didn't like his sounds, you know, all the relationship things I always needed to over communicate. He always needed to know that was like the, where I operated from. And I think becoming a parent and again, working on that well ahead before we had Rocky really allowed us to get into a space of just not not sweating the small stuff as much. And really, I think really learning how to be empathetic listeners, because one of the things that Kevin and I really realized a year, yes, a year before I got pregnant was how much our egos were driving our, our arguments. And I think that really shows up in postpartum because especially as moms, it's like, you're doing so much. Everything is so hard, so demanding on your body. And it's really hard to lead from a place of love versus ego because Mm -hmm. your ego is like, I'm sacrificing so much right now. I'm like losing myself and for our family and I need you to do X, Y, Z, you know? So I think, I think ego is a really interesting thing that if you're not, if you haven't spent a lot of time exploring that before you have a baby, it will really show up in the postpartum. At least I I guess that's like my experience with what I've seen with friends, you know, another thing I will note that I think is really important is include your partner in whatever you can. When you're pregnant, it's such a personal experience. You feel every kick, you know, you have Mm -hmm. all you're doing is like thinking about this being and for your partner, they can't experience that in the same way. And so her advice constantly was like to include them in, to include Kevin into that experience as much as I can. And that really allowed us to have conversations on a deeper level. And I think that really helped us in the postpartum period as well. Also, I will say, I I do think this needs to be mentioned. Kevin showed a lot of interest in my experiences. And when I read about some like relationship issues that come up in postpartum for people. I just can't help but think about whether when if I had a kid with my ex and how much that would have been like that because he was just not a very nice person to me at times. And I just feel like men need to step up and care a little bit more about their partners and what they're going through and show a genuine interest in how our worlds like completely are rocked. And Instead of just like putting it all on men also, I think for us, it's important to then also lead those conversations, right? And to make sure that we as new moms, hopefully when you're pregnant, are getting to a space where we are comfortable pushing for conversation, for dialogue, for empathy, for all those things so that we can get them in a place of discomfort to comfort, you know? Absolutely. I I agree with what you said too about like in my case with Sean, for example, communication is a big one, especially transparency and communication. Like sometimes it does need to be spelled out. Like I, Sean and I always say, look, I'm not a mind reader. Could you just like, just spell it out for me, but do it from a space of kindness and not from anger. And I always 
say it's all in the delivery. And there's a difference between saying like, it's really frustrating to me when you leave a pile of bottles there. Mm. It would really help if maybe you could just wash them so that it's one less thing for me to handle versus like, you're pissing me off. Like, you well, why'd you leave it there? And now I can't do this and do that. It's just the delivery always can dictate the way our partners are able to respond to our delivery. And it makes a world of difference in the way that Sean and I have shown up for each other. And we just had a conversation the other day about pulling his socks up and I'm not putting it all on him because it is exactly like you said, that it's okay to lead the conversation and show how to be empathetic listeners for each other. And I find too, that it gives our partners the opportunity to understand us better because I often feel like men, they're they're just biologically a little bit wired different than us. They think different. So when we paint the picture a little bit different, like when I was talking to my therapist, she was saying how often when I'm triggered, I I can go straight to F you pretty fast if my cup's feeling pretty empty. Mm-hmm. And she's like, you know, sometimes that's just the junk food of language. And it's, it's futility because saying that F you is actually putting a veil over the space where you're actually feeling hurt and not seen. And so maybe like take a pause and sit there, even though this is very hard to do sometimes and ask yourself what it's really about. And then painting a picture for your partner on where that pain is coming from. So yeah, being transparent and learning to communicate, it's both of our responsibility. And before COA, I thought we had that nailed and dialed, Mm -hmm. but after COA, I definitely know we totally didn't and that we are getting better at it. Yeah. Well, that's so great because, you know, it's, we're all just learning. Right. And earlier, these beings come into our life for a reason. And they also come into not just like a reason for us individually, but also for us collectively. Right. So for our relationship, Rocky came in for a reason as well and is serving us in some way. I mean, obviously I know that, but you know, I'm, I'm, I mean more on a spiritual level, but absolutely. And I think it's really hard to focus on empathetic listening and your delivery when you have a screaming, you know, four week old baby on your hands and you're overwhelmed and your boobs are leaking and you're, you know, you got a scar and all, all these things that you're going through postpartum, you know, it's, that's, that's a really fragile and vulnerable state already. So to add like learning how to communicate in those fresh days is really challenging, which is why I guess I always encourage people to start that in their pregnancy or even well before. But, you know, if you are pregnant right now and listening, like start that now, make your life easier. Think about like what's works for you so that you can apply those, you know, in the postpartum period. And then after, you know, when you become a parent, one other thing I want to add that was really impactful to us that our midwife shared in Sedona was that we each have a role, right? So my role when I was pregnant was growing this life. And then Kevin's role, which he described was that he is an incubator. And so I think that was really helpful for Kevin is he had a role and he took that really seriously. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if I would have ever had the words or known to like, make sure to give Kevin a, a role during pregnancy, but it really helped for us. Cause anytime you know, there was like a slight argument brewing once Rocky was born or whatever, he kind of stepped right back into I'm the incubator. So (laughs) where midwife described it was like, you know, mama bear and cub, they're in this like very vulnerable, intimate, 
relationship right now. They're, you know, they know each other already and they're getting to know the world together for the first time again. Cause yeah. Cause you never had this before. Right. You've never had this before. And my midwife was like, and Alex will never be the same again. So she's learning how to operate in the world again with this new being who's never been in the world. And your role is to be a safe incubator. And so Kevin would literally like hold his hands as far as he could hold his arms as far as he could and be like, okay, I'm the incubator. He would like hold, <laughs> literally like hold the air and just be like, okay, I'm the incubator. And so I think part of all these issues that come up for couples a lot is that the partner doesn't know what their role is. Mm-hmm. That's what my mentor told me in Sedona when I was pregnant. And I didn't really fully understand it until after we got out of like that newborn haze where I was like, oh, Kevin had a very defined role. And I think that really helped him figure out how he could serve me and Rocky best during that time. So I think for anyone listening, you know, might not be the incubator, but I would encourage thinking about your partner in that way and your partner thinking about, okay, so what is my role during this time? You know, how do I want to facilitate things? What kind of energy do I want to be exuding during this like very, I keep saying fragile, but I, I, it's not what I mean. Yeah. I guess vulnerable time, you know, very wide open, energetically raw time. And, you know, in, in the way that you were saying you were using love language before, a lot of guys love languages, acts of service. So I feel like sometimes they might be wanting to pour their energy into something. A lot of guys, a lot of men are naturally problem solvers or doers. And it's like, if they have an outlet for that, they can show up in that space. And it might not be the way we're ready to receive it, but it is a way that they do show love. It doesn't mean it's not there. It just might be something we're not totally familiar with. Totally. And that's something that Kevin and I have definitely learned in our relationship. I mean, when we, when we first met and got married, he used to clean the house. You know, he's very clean, loves to vacuum all the things. And (laughs) You know, he would clean the house and then be like, I cleaned for you. And, you know, ultimately, this was before we knew love languages. I'd be like, no, you didn't. You cleaned for yourself. (laughs) And then when we found out love languages, it really changed our relationship tremendously because then we could figure out, oh, I'm doing this actually for you. Whereas like there's certain things very often the love language that we need is the one that we're giving our partner, but that's not the what they're actually looking for, you know? So when he would clean, he would think he was doing it for me, but really he was doing it for himself. And same for me, like I learning his love languages, like now I know, okay, the, the nicest, kindest thing I could do is him coming home to a clean house. And even though I never have to clean because he always cleans obsessively, <laughs> but you know, like, let's say he comes back from a trip or something like that. I make sure the house is like nice and clean and he just over compliments me. And he's so, you know, that is his love language is a clean home. <laughs> totally. I get it. But we didn't know that before, you know? So I, I do really think, like you said, like figuring out, you know, the acts of service and how you can communicate with each other beforehand is really crucial to making it a little bit less stressful than it is. A hundred percent. The big step that you made to leave the algorithm and how you found freedom, which I think this is a huge deal because 
we all know there's good and bad to social media. And I've heard a lot of people going on social media detoxes from time to time. And it blows my mind how much of an addicted society we are, including myself, like how much I have to stop myself from scrolling in the morning and then scrolling before I go to bed. And in those first few weeks of motherhood, it was kind of, it was very foggy. And when I was feeling very alone at night, it was so easy for me to just pull out my phone and scroll while I was breastfeeding my baby. Mm -hmm. And yet I also believe it can be such a toxic space if we mindlessly scroll and navigate. So my question is, what drove you to leave Instagram and what have you gained as a result of leaving? And do you ever miss it? Hmm, I do miss it. I definitely do miss it. I, I mean, I definitely have popped on here and there. I'd say probably like once a month I've popped on. So I wouldn't say I fully left it, which was my intention to fully leave when I said I left the algorithm. But I think for me, it was really more, it wasn't about setting this rule of like not being on and when, but I think it was more so saying out loud that like I'm fully done with Instagram in the way that I was operating it before. And yeah, I've learned so much about it before. So like I mentioned, I was blogging even before on our moon. I've shared so much of my life on social media, both in my writing photos, all that kind of stuff. And, you know, three, four years ago, even longer, I guess, Kevin and I were going to do a YouTube series. We're going to do a weekly vlog. You know, we were going to show all the things that we talk about and eat and where we travel, all these things, you know, that we know that that there's couples that I love that I follow on YouTube, that I love on Instagram and TikTok. And that was an intention, I think, of ours to show our life. And I was doing that on Instagram. And I, without sounding conceited, I do really think it would have done well had we done that type of YouTube. I'm so grateful we never did that. So, so grateful because what I've come to realize over my relationship with social media, and then now that I'm, you know, quote, out of it, is that there are certain things that are sacred. And Hmm. I think it's really easy to lose yourself in social media. And for me, outside of everything that you just mentioned that we know, like scrolling and all that stuff is unhealthy. We're, we, we all know that mental health, all those things. But for me, what I wasn't really aware of consciously was that there's certain things in life that are sacred and that don't necessarily need to be shared in this format that we've so normalized. And so for me, the most sacred thing in my life is my relationship with my husband and my daughter, my family, that is the most important thing to me. And so the more I started working on myself, like outside of social media, the less I needed to be validated by social media. And the more I was able to share less and I guess feel the need to share less. So there was that aspect that already kind of started with Kevin a year before we had Rocky, where I started sharing Kevin a lot less on my Instagram Anyone who followed me before then was definitely used to Kevin being in my stories all the time. And then I made a decision for that not to happen. And, you know, if this is the most important thing in my life, why am I sharing it so willingly with every Mm -hmm. single person that follows me? And I'm not saying this to shame anyone else who does that. I'm just saying for me, that was a big realization. And then when Rocky was born, I shared so much so quickly. It actually like, Every time I see photos that I posted within the first few weeks, I really cringe. But I think it's because I was going through so much and it was such a monumental change. And so many people were such a such a part of my fertility journey. And I wanted to share the joy and the struggles 
So I'm, I'm not like shaming myself for it. But at the same time, having Rocky, I think it was when she was about four or five weeks, I suddenly started spiraling. I saw a post about child safety online and just how we share birth weight, middle names, hospital, like we share so much in birth announcements. And I started going down a really dark hole of child online safety. And I immediately like wasn't on Instagram for a week. And then I kind of went back and forth and stopped sharing Rocky as much. And it just was really hard to find any consistency because as you know, it's addictive and it's so easy to get back to it. And then when people started commenting on my parenting, you know, I've taken a lot of flack for all sorts of things on social, you know, I've, I've talked about like some pretty tough issues over the years. Yeah. And I've never shied away from tough conversations. However, when now it's one thing to be criticized as a person, but to be criticized as a mother and have strangers use my daughter's name, that was, again, what will I not stand for? I will not stand for that. And so that was a very clear line in the sand for me where I was like, I will no longer operate like this. This is not working for me. And so partly like the safety thing for children online, that definitely is something I think about a lot. And I, I think about how easy it would have been for someone to find our address in Sedona, like crazy easy. And now with photos where you can just plug a photo, especially if you're renting, you can just plug a photo in Pinterest and someone can find your address based on like where those photos of your place live. Like I didn't even know that. That's crazy. It's re- it's really nuts when you go down the rabbit hole. And again, I think it's important to have these conversations because I didn't know that. And yes, it, these are tough conversations to have and very anxious ones when we have kids. But that was definitely part of it. And then the other one was just going back to like that sacredness. Like this is the most important thing in my life. Like how much am I willing? Like I can give all of myself uh, in my writing and in on social media but not the parts that are the most important to me, which are my husband and my daughter. And that is, I I like to now get into a space where I'm more private with that. Even though I share a lot in my writing still, I'm a mom. I think about those things more. I think about, I ask Kevin now, I would share things about our relationship and not even ask Kevin. And I I actually apologized to him after I left Instagram because I didn't realize how invasive that was on him at times. And he even communicated after he was like, you know, I never realized how much you shared until you left. And we were traveling at the time. And he was like, it's so crazy because no one knows where we are right now. (laughs) Friends don't know where we are. Our family, like no one knows where we are. And for the last six years, everyone has known our every step, every decision we've made right away on social media. So sorry, that's a long way of saying I really learned a lot from leaving outside of the scrolling and addictive stuff, but really just like what is important to you and does that need to be shared? You know, does every single thing need to be shared online? And I guess that was my, one of my main takeaways. I was just having a conversation with my partner yesterday about life being sacred. In fact, I put a post-it note on our front door that says this life we live is sacred because it's becoming so evidently clear, even as a parent, how precious time is and how, how much more quickly time passes when you have, when you add a child to your life. And so I'm always thinking about like in our emotional real estate, how are we spending our time? How do we choose our choices? And is it adding value to 
the life we're living? Because if it's not, is it something we can afford to step away from? And then in opening up that time and space, does it leave room to grow the other things that we hold close to our heart? So I love that you use that word because that is definitely a word that has come up for me so much this past week, especially. So it's great that you mentioned that. Yeah. And then also, I think COVID really... You know, all of us were so on social media and I think social media to a certain extent really helped us feel connected in a way, right? When we were all quarantined last year. Yeah. But I think also people started really looking at life and how they were living it. And I think a lot of people started self-reflecting on the fact that they weren't really consciously making decisions anymore, right? They weren't, everything was just kind of, you just do things, you just kind of do what you're told and you I feel like a lot of people woke up to the fact that they weren't really living a life for themselves. And I think in this topic of social media, a lot of people realized that they were on social media, not necessarily for the wrong reasons, but doing it because they think they have to, especially if you're a business owner. And I think it's been really inspiring to see how many businesses have been thriving outside of social media, specifically outside of Instagram. I'm just seeing like on TikTok how businesses have been able to thrive and they have zero following on on Instagram. Meanwhile, on TikTok, one video will go viral and they'll make more sales than they ever have in their entire, you know, company history. Right. And so I just these rules of like, well, I'm a business and I need social media, or I'm a this and I need social. Like I, I like that we are having these conversations and that we're seeing people who are living a life without it and doing just fine, more than just fine, you know? And so I was really inspired about that and seeing, you know, cause I think for a long time, I believed that I, I couldn't not have social media. It was my form of writing. And to a certain extent I had to let go. I mean, I didn't have 19,000 followers follow me to the newsletter, you know? So I had to let like that number go, which sounds so like awful to say out loud right now, but that's the truth of it. And it felt really freeing. Like I remember when all the people who signed up for my newsletter did, which I think at the time was like, I think it was, I think I ended up originally with like 1800 emails or something like that. That was, I was just like, these are my people. Like I want to write for you. And suddenly I was like, I don't don't give a shit about 19,000 people. Like it was this weird thing that happened in my brain where I was just like, why am I like divulging so much to strangers that, you know, I don't know how they're feeling about me. I don't know what kind of energy they're projecting my way. And it just, the newsletter feels like people are making a conscious choice to follow me or to subscribe to the newsletter versus following me, which anyone can just do. And so it feels like those people have made a choice to hop on this ride with me. And that feels very empowering, even if it's a much lower number. That's such a powerful realization. And I can tell you as a paid subscriber, a very reasonable price for $6 a month. I love it. I'm and sorry. I, I wasn't trying to plug my newsletter, by the way. I was just no, showing no. those numbers, you know, because we were so obsessed with following. And it, no, and I, I think it's important you, it to know. Nothing. It means nothing. It, it's so, it really <laughs> doesn't. That, that was the point I was trying to make. <laughs> no, and I appreciate that because even when... I I never really shared my writing publicly and I'm still learning how to do it. And, and I think I only get better at it as I learn to cultivate a more honest relationship with my truths and things I feel like sharing. 
but it's easy to get sidetracked by that number of likes and follows. And then it's like, well, why are you doing this? Like, does that even matter? Is that what's going to dictate what this means to you? No. So like, let's get back to why and what it means to you. Totally. Yeah. And I think, you know, at the end of the day, we all have, we all have a choice to make. These are, I think this is going back to like, these are conscious decisions that we can make and we have the right to step back we have the right to hop back in. You know, I haven't been too hard on myself that I'm back on Instagram, not back on Instagram, but that I pop in occasionally because that's what felt right for me to do in that moment. And so I think it's, it's not about like getting off or all these things. It's just about just making choices that are actually aligned with what is important to you. I agree. So the final thing I wanted to mention is speaking of (laughs) Instagram and how sometimes you were hopping back on. You shared a story with your followers about a mother who needed help financially to feed her children. And I know that on your... I'm mentioning your newsletter because I think everyone that follows you and people that don't know you would supremely benefit from your writing because it's so beautiful and honest. And and it's something I was going to bring attention to at the end of our episode anyway. But anyway, in this story, you share about this mother and you put it out to the masses if there was any way that anybody would be willing to help by giving a financial contribution, whether it be a dollar or more to help her. And that morning, I actually had a meditation with myself and I asked God or divine or whatever you want to call it for some sort of sign, because I was feeling very tapped out energetically. There's so much divide in our world right now, as you know. And I've been hearing like a lot of discouraging comments from people that some people that I'm, I consider close. And I wanted a sign because I was feeling so depleted. And I wanted a sign that there was still kindness in people, even though their projections might be showing otherwise at this time. So when I saw your story, I really felt like that was a sign. And I want to thank you for sharing it. I was hoping you could share with our listeners what that was and just how much you were able to raise. And yeah, 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 absolutely. So um, a woman that, again, it's these awful things you realize once you leave Instagram, but you know people by their handle. And so she's commented on things through stories for a long time. So she's followed me a long time. I just recognized the handle and she reached out to me to see if she could be a part of the private group on our, on my newsletter, which by the way, if you can't afford it, just shoot me an email. No questions asked. I'll ask you <laughs> one. But I said, absolutely. Like, no, you know, I could see that she was typing and I was like, don't even worry about it. And then she ended up telling me that her sister-in-law overdosed and she has four kids. And so now suddenly on top of grieving, she's also taking care of four children. They were already financially struggling zero financial support. So this mom wasn't expecting any, you know, me to do anything, or it wasn't like she was like asking me to do that or anything, but I hope that we could, you know, I've seen it so much on Instagram now that I had hoped that we could get maybe five, 500 to a thousand dollars. And you know, that's a, that's a lot of money. Hopefully like maybe like help with some groceries this week, you know, just a little gesture to show that, you know, the world, the universe, that people are rooting for her and her family and supporting her. And I just sent the last, last bit of payments last night, but we were, I think it was $3,146, something like that. Amazing. Um, 
so yeah, it was three times, I guess, what I had hoped to be able to offer this woman. And what really, it really changed so much in how I, you know, like many of us, like I've also had immense fears around the future, probably different from, I'd say most people, I have a lot of fears around the government and control and whatnot. And I've definitely spiraled and been in a dark mental place around it. But this just gave me a completely different perspective because someone needed help and people just showed up. They didn't ask like who she was, what her values are, whether she's Republican or Democrat, you know, all these like labels are putting on people because every single thing in our life right now, doesn't matter what topic is so heavily politicized and no one asked anything about her. They just showed up for someone that needed help. And it just reminded me the world is good, that people are inherently good and want to do good. And it really allowed me to see people as humans again, you know, because I feel like we're losing sight. We're, we're so wrapped up in headlines and numbers and statistics and, you know, stories that we hear on social media and, and just so much noise coming our way that we're forgetting that we're all human beings. We're all struggling with something. And at the end of the day, we're all doing the best for our families and the people that we loved, you know? And so even if they're opposing views and we're doing things that we disagree with, we can still come from a place of empathy and love and compassion. And I think, you know, even just today, actually on Instagram, um, I'm doing a few stories and it's interesting. People really push back on that. You know, they don't want to be in that space, but I think had we started in that space to begin with over the last year and a half, we would be a lot better off in our society right now. And there would be a lot less divisiveness if we actually like got into a place of listening and trying to understand and less shaming and blaming. And I think particularly because like my background with Honor Moon and talking so much about shame, I see how it's happening on both sides, on all sides. And I just, I think we really need to come back to this fundamental truth, which is that the world is good. People are good and people are trying to do good all the time. Even people that you fundamentally disagree with, that you on paper would think are the most vile human beings, you know, everything that like those labels are doing to people, the discord, the social discord, that we are more alike than we think. That's ultimately what, what my biggest takeaway was for today, um, for this week with this situation. So yeah, it was a really cool experience and it just completely shifted everything that I've been feeling for the last few months. <laughs> so beautiful. I'm really glad you shared that story. Was she just aghast when you told her? Yeah, you know, it was happening so fast. So it wasn't, it wasn't like I gave her that number right away. It was like, Hey, uh, I'm going to send you, I think the first number was like $800. And she was like, Holy shit. What? And again, she didn't tell me this, but she said she was her son. She was going to have to get him to drop out of preschool because they couldn't make the payment. And she was like, that payment was due today. And so wow. I immediately Venmoed her and she was able to make that payment. And so it kind of just happened in real time where I was like, oh, someone just sent $300. I, I was kind of communicating with her all the time, like throughout the, those 24 hours. So I think both for her and I, it was just like this whirlwind of just like, <laughs> just again, like believing in people and that we really all care for each other, you know? And, you know, if you just listen to the media and you just like listen to the noise on social media, you forget 
that truth, you know, and I think it's important this, I think a lot of people this week were surprised by how much we were able to donate to this woman. And also I think everyone was, you know, I made a comment about that after, you know, the people are good world is good. And I think that was like the biggest takeaway for people, you know, on, on top of like how I felt about it. I think people were really, it was a really nice story to hear amidst like constant, like division, you know? Absolutely. And what an incredible fundamental truth for us to remember during this time. So yeah, it touched a lot of our hearts. Exhale on that one. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So having said all that, why don't you let all of us know how we can find you? I know that I've mentioned your newsletter. Everyone should subscribe. It's beautiful. You won't regret it. How else can we find you? And maybe let us know how to get to that newsletter. Yeah. um, So the newsletter is on ourmoon.substack.com. And if you go to my Instagram, it's just the link in bio. Yeah, I send out a weekly newsletter. It's free for um, every Sunday. And then I also send out newsletters for paid subscribers. And there's a private group. So I'm really just trying to create community and conversation. We talk about big and little things, everything from you know childhood trauma to benefit and <laughs> celebrity <laughs> gossip. I just I try to find a balance between heavy and light topics. And I will be launching a podcast at the end of October. So our paid subscribers will be have access to a weekly episode. That's exciting for your podcast. Are you doing mostly solo casts or you plan to bring on different people or both? No, doing solo terrifies me. I don't even know what I would say. I feel like (laughs) I'm so in awe that people can just talk to a mic and, and act normal. I definitely have a long list of guests. I'm doing kind of friends and friends of friends and people I've met over the years through On Our Moon that have cool stories and just going to talk to them. I don't, I honestly don't really have like a big, like a big plan with the podcast other than I've been, I've almost launched a podcast two times for the last four years. And so I, I guess I'm just finally doing it, but I will be talking to Kevin a lot in the beginning as I'm setting up, you know, as you know, scheduling podcasts, that can be a big challenge. So I'm going to be talking to Kevin a lot in the beginning as I get going. I just kind of want to start. I don't want to overthink it because that's one of my biggest problems is that I overthink everything and then I get overwhelmed and I don't do it. And so I just want to get started and kind of see what happens and, and take it slow and not too serious and you know, I think I realized before that I was always trying to be someone else, you know, when I launched, tried to launch the podcast last time, a couple of years ago, it was like trying to be Oprah or Brene Brown, or, you know, <laughs> trying to be in that space and that, oh my God, talk about pressure. I mean, it's just impossible, you know? So I think I'm just getting used to just being like, this can stay small. We can go slow. It doesn't need to be anything crazy and just kind of see what happens. I'm so excited for you. I can tell you myself from my own personal experience that the act of beginning was a far bigger, grandiose picture in my head than it was when I actually hit publish and started having these conversations. And it's been a really cool experience. It's story sharing to me is like medicine that we all have access to. It's exa- yeah. that's exactly what it is. Well, thank you so much for having me. I will definitely be reaching out with podcast advice soon. So I hope you do. And I just, I wanted to thank you for sharing your time with me today. I knew from the way that you wrote that I wanted to have a conversation with you and I'm sure your followers and subscribers are going to love hearing this. Rocky is so lucky to have you as her mama. 
<laughs> from one mother to another, I I'm I hand over heart. I'm grateful for you and your work. And you've normalized so much through what you write about that your humanity isn't only gifting Rocky, it's gifting each of us too. So thank you so much for that. Thank you. Thank you. I really appreciate that. Next time I have a bad day, I'm going to call you up for all these kind of words. <laughs> Anytime. Um, thank you so much. Have a beautiful day and give Rocky a big squeeze and I will follow you through your, your journey. Thank you. Thank you so much. Okay. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to my conversation with Alex. The more I dive into this work, the more I feel the gift that conversation sharing truly is. I'm always so captivated with my guests and their willingness to be vulnerable with me in this space. I love being able to share these stories because I truly believe they connect us to ourselves and each other. Thank you, Alex, for all your beautiful messages and wisdoms you've picked up along your journey. If you'd like to subscribe to Alex's newsletter on Substack, the links will be in my show notes. On my next episode, I am sharing a conversation with someone near and dear to my heart, my partner, Sean Nolan. He's someone that always challenges me to go beyond my comfort zone. And in this episode, I get to challenge him as we deep dive into life. You don't want to miss it. Until next time, I'm sending each of you so much love and thank you again for tuning in.